Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Experiments Web Clinic Audio Replay Podcast. Marketing Experiments is an internet marketing research laboratory. The web clinic you are about to hear was broadcast live to an international audience of marketing professionals. Sign up to be invited to future web clinics, as well as gain access to all of our online marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. And let's get started. You'll see behind me the subject, the web is a living laboratory. This is going to be a bit different than perhaps the rest of our sessions. I'm going to try to walk you through some discoveries that are closely connected to the last really at least 15 years of research. Before I do that, I'd like to begin right away by the case study. You'll notice the test protocol is 1427. That's its ID in our library. And I want to take you to a, a, a landing page. This is from Reg Online. They've been at these events. They attended. This is a controlled home page. This is the control for a test and experiment that we designed. And I want you to look at it and ask yourself, what's one change you might try to improve this? So as I walk down here, be bold. Just lift your hand real quickly. And I don't know that we'll try to use mics. I think I'll just speak out loud, say it back, because we're going to go fast. Somebody, what would you do to make this page better? Yes? I would more align it so it's the eye path kind of flows. All right. You get the eye path vertically aligned. I would agree with you. Yes. Change. Go ahead. Change the headline. Take out the Y and say something. Is that what you're... That's a good point. Somebody else, what would you do? Yes. Get rid of the lady. <laughs> Cold, ruthless marketers just down to the numbers. All right. What else? Now, when you say get rid of the lady, you don't mean like cancel her. You mean just like take her off the page, right? She said that with such uh, precision. And we are in Vegas. I couldn't tell what she really meant. Uh, she may live. All right. Good. What else would you do? Somebody else tell me how you might make the page better. All the way up there on the left. Yes. Too many calls to action. How can you make that page better? Good point. Somebody else. What else do you see that might make the page better? One more change, right there in red. Yes. It looks like there's an offer that says something is free, but it's very difficult to read, she says. All right, well, let's look at the page just a little bit more. And um, this is the treatment. And uh, this is a change in this page. And we improve the headline. We use specific features and benefits to express the value. We emphasize the free piece that you talked about. We created the vertical alignment that was discussed in the front. We ensured that the value was being communicated in the subsequent steps so that we would have continuity. And uh, as we did so, we essentially did the treatment and the control Considered both, set them up into an experimental path, A, B, split. Really, it's called single factorial testing. We have a patent in how you do it. So, and then we ran a test. Now, would you agree with me in general that the right page um, ha has made some important changes? Would you agree with that at least? Okay. Let me share with you uh, the results. The geniuses at Mech Labs managed to grow conversion by a negative 24.5%. More reason why you might want to get your ticket refunded before, you know, we're too late into the sessions. We didn't go forwards, we went backwards. Or did we? Because the goal of a test is not just to get a lift, but it is to get a learning. And in each well-designed test where you achieve validity, you should be gleaning a rich insight about your customer that helps you to maximize the overall yield. Indeed, um, testing itself is the essential component of the marketer's work. The marketer is constrained by the gap they have in their mind between what they believe to be true about their customer and what actually is true about their customer. And that gap must be crossed and testing is the way that you bridge it. So, at this moment, what we do know is that several things in our hypothesis about what would make the page work better were wrong. So we ask a question, how can we improve this page? And it leads to a principle. Asking Lao how leads uh, to why. 
how provides information. Why can help you glean wisdom. But as marketers, we're so busy asking how that we often don't have time for why. We're asking, how can I meet my deadline? We're asking, how can I get this project done with the short staff that I have? How can I figure out these metrics well enough just to get through the month and get my numbers or something approximating my KPIs while I'm, you know, able to get it in on this side of the quarter? And how can I get better at email delivery? And how can I improve my open rates? All of those hows are important, but they're grounded in something more fundamental, a sort of why question that should be driving all of our work. And the, the web is more than a channel. It becomes the place where you can get answers to those deep, fundamental questions about your customers. So why did this treatment decrease conversion by 25%? Why did more people say yes to the control? That's the real question. And to sort of understand that, you've got to realize that very few people recognize that the Internet itself is a laboratory for you and I to figure out all the rest of our marketing activity. It is, the, it is more than a channel. It's the essential place to conduct the research we need to do about our customer. And so here's what we did. We took that same experiment and we did a flank attack. See this test protocol 3055? Same company. But now what we're doing is looking at this homepage and saying, before we're going to get a lift here where there's so much traffic coming, let's use one of the SEO pages as a research window, and let's use the Internet to peer into the cognitive psychology of the thought sequence as someone is interacting with his product mix. So, we designed another experiment. And that experiment was designed to be a window into the mind of the customer. And here's what we did. We took this landing page for SEO, and it offers the exact same product. It's dealing with a smaller subset of visitors, so we reduce our risk. And then we knew that we could test here without actually having very negative consequences or hurting conversion for the home page. So we did. And we created this page. Now, underneath this page is a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis about how the customer is thinking and interacting with the various aspects of the offer. And on this page, we focus on how the product enables creating registration forms easier and how it can cut your time in half. Now, that's connected to a theory. A theoretical question. Here's the theoretical question. And it is, what matters most to the customer when considering our offer alongside of someone else's? We did this in Canada and created the number one most successful campaign in their history, I think, called the $6 account. We got down deeply and figured out what the customer cared about the most using the Internet to peer into their mind. We did the same here. And so we emphasize it's easy but it has still robust functionality. So what is the result? And uh, here's what we discover. Control, treatment, differential. A 548% increase. Now, marketers think for a moment because here's where it sort of gets complex. This 548% increase is exciting, but remember, it's a subset of their customers. Its value isn't the revenue it generates. Its value is the insight that it's giving us into the mind of the customer. And we're now going to take that insight and export it to other opportunities. So what do we do? Well, we go back to the original homepage. Now we have an SEO test that produces 548%. We've got a really powerful set of learnings from the first test that went negative 24, from the second test at 548, and we put them in the home page, and now where almost all the money flows, the big pipe where revenue is flowing, we see a 90% increase. Do you see what's happened here? The web has been more than some place to run a test real quickly and see if we can improve performance in that channel. The web has become this, this very important lens for seeing into the mind of your prospects and your customers. And it sort of leads to how I'd like to teach with you this morning, and it brings me to the second principle, and that is sometimes we need to slow down in order to go fast. This is a direct quote from uh, 
A book I have coming out this year called The Marketer's Philosopher. Action is overrated. Action should be grounded in contemplation. Now, I know everything in you is screaming, no, no, no. I will admit that contemplation without action is anemic. But action without contemplation is dangerous. We rush around so often we don't have time to slow down and think. And if we can add that sort of contemplation and reflection into our activities, not only will you get a difference in results, but you know what? The whole business that we're involved in gets more fascinating. Learning new things about how people think and why they say yes is fascinating work. Do not let the connotation of the word marketer get in the way of the denotation. Marketer, today we are viewed about one notch above salesmen, and salesmen are not viewed very high in society's estimation of interesting, fascinating, or noble professions. Uh, when we talk about marketing, some people imagine that we are those people who manage to sell more of those Ginsu knives. Or manage to get you to buy another ab roller to put next to the other four that you've already bought. None of which actually made any difference on your midline whatsoever. But you bought the hope in that commercial. And that girl cried when she did that testimonial. It was so touching. You knew it had to be genuine. There it sits next to the other ab roller. And they think we're one of those people that talk people into buying things that probably aren't even going to work for them. We are not. The marketer has unique calling to see into the mind of the customer and to bring right into the sweet suite, right in, in front of the CEO, the most important issues that all of those who run a business need to understand. And that is, why are people buying from us? Because the minute we lose touch with that, we lose the whole direction of the enterprise. At the heart of the enterprise is the value proposition. And nobody should be leading the charge more to understand that than the marketer. Now, I say all of that with you to sort of take you through this, this new way to look. The marketer should be the philosopher of the organization. And the vigorous action of sales needs to be grounded in the rigorous contemplation of marketing. That sets me up. Let's skip the book. And, uh, and goes to three points. These points uh, are different. Honestly, I, I, the better speakers are coming after me. You'll hear people who will take you straight through case studies and help you understand those pieces. And I'll do some of that tomorrow. And today we're going to look at case studies. But I want to teach you three principles that I think are more essential to getting everything else right we do in marketing. Number one, the marketer does not optimize ads or pages or emails. The marketer optimizes thoughts and conclusions. In fact, marketer, may I suggest this to you? Sales makes claims. Marketers foster conclusions. We want sales, you know, sales may have to claim we can do this for you and when we do this, we're the best at X. But the marketer wants you to own the conclusion. Brand is just the aggregate experience of the value proposition. And if I make a claim to you as a human being, your natural posture is to defend against that claim, check it, investigate it, determine whether or not you will accept it. You have something called a critical sensor. It engages automatically without you even trying. If I walk up to this woman and I say to you, this is going to be the best event you ever attend. Honestly, I put her on defense. You know it's true. And she's watching. And if anything goes wrong, it's like, how good is this compared to the other event? And it's just the total wrong way to influence thinking. Much more important, it is as a marketer to help that person, this person, draw a conclusion. This probably, by the way, won't be the best event you ever attend. Give me three or four more of these and we're, we're working on them. But I'll tell you this, we're going to do every conceivable thing we can so that when you walk away from here, you walk away with something solid that you can take back and apply. We're not going to put any vendors on the stage to sell you their products. That's all right. But we're not doing it because all we want here is data and case studies. Either a case study or somebody's, you know, their story of how they did this or experimental data that shows you what we found when we ran tests. We want you to be able to take back and use that. Now, back to you as a marketer. I, if I wanted you to draw a conclusion about one of our brands, the most important thing for me to do is get into conversation with you and to give you the right sort of information where you draw your own conclusion. That's how branding really works. Brand shouldn't make a claim. Brand should foster a conclusion. If I make a claim with my brand, you're trying to see if it's true or not. But if you draw a conclusion, you're defending it yourself instead of me. 
Keep that in mind as we look at these next points. Because we're going to look at each one of these observations. I only have three. And we're going to look at a danger associated with each of them. Here is the first one, as you see behind me. And, and I want to just point out something. What you see even on the screen is an illusion. There are no such thing as a web page. To make it a page, you have to change it, print it. I mean, the average web page is never set on fire, can't be cut with a pair of scissors. In fact, it's an illusion projected on a screen. It's pixels being turned on by zeros and ones. This has never been about web pages. It's never been about emails. It's always been about what's happening in the mind. And if the marketer focuses too much in a flat, one-dimensional perspective on what the copy looks like, what the email body looks like, or what the landing page looks like, they will never achieve the true big gains you can capture in conversion. The gains are on the other side of that page and they're in the mind of the person you're interacting with. So you have to be aware of company logic. Substituting company logic for customer logic. This is a grave danger. Here's an example from behind 1341. A uh, company offering dedicated business hosting services. There they are. We looked at them yesterday in our value proposition. Uh, We have experts here who know about this page already. Take a look at it. What do they sell? Those look sort of like uh, high school lockers up on the top, don't they? They're in the hosting business, and we know they're servers, but does that mean every person who comes to this page, A, recognizes that's a server? By the way, you have seven seconds to answer three questions when anyone lands to your page. You have four inches of space. Where am I? Because people aren't sure they're in the right place. And if they're confused, they use the little green arrow at the top of the screen to get clarity. Google counts on that. The second question is, what can I do here? And if that's not abundantly clear, then you leave it to them to make meaning of the page. And that's a dangerous thing. Far too much unsupervised thinking. Number three, what or why should I do it? And that's the beginning of your value proposition unfolding. On this page, I'm not even sure I'm in the right place. They use the right-hand top of the page to talk about their server business. That looks like an ad for something different, and that's their main headline. They got the servers on the left side of the page in an image, but even if we knew their servers, ask yourself a question. How does that image really help persuade you to say yes? Is it contributing in any way to the page? Not in any way that's important. An image should either state your value proposition, support your value proposition, or control the iPath. You use it to draw their eyes through the value proposition. An image that isn't working is wasting. You say, well, an an image might be able to set tone. Yes, I know that. But in the name of setting tone, we have filled our websites with remarkable pieces of clip art that do nothing but get in the way of the messaging. And indeed, in this case, we looked at this and realized the page was framed with company logic. They asked all these questions that didn't need to be answered. They had a headline scrunched over on the right-hand side and a picture of servers that made a lot of sense to them, but not to the customer. And uh, then they asked these questions, but they only needed four of those fields to generate a quote. The others made sense to a company thinking with company logic that that's information they'd like to know. But you do not approach your web pages with company logic. You must approach them with customer logic. And in this case, we went back and designed a page to do something different. The new page lets the visitor know where they are and what they can do. The new page organizes the content. It uses images on purpose with intent next to testimonials, drawing the eyes through a vertical flow of thought, moving them down to the key sort of call to action. This is an Australian company. And uh, what was the result? Because again, this is not about my opinions. It's about, it's about what we can discover together as a community when we're running tests, looking for patterns. Trying to realize how customers think. Here's the result. 189% increase in overall conversion. That's a lot more revenue off that page. 189% increase. What's happened in the second page? Is it that good? No, it could be improved. I think it could be improved dramatically. But the new page is much better than the old page. Not because it visually has some sexier design. And I'm not against beautiful designs. I think it's wonderful when you can have a a beautiful design. But I want a design, first of all, that functions, that achieves the KPI, that's centered around objective. Seventy percent of that page should be trying to do one thing. One thing. No more than 30 percent of that attention can go anywhere else or you'll have a mitigated conversion rate in everything that you do. So, 
that sort of brings us to the second component, and that is that the goal of the marketer is to move the prospect not down the funnel, but up the funnel. Now, the funnel is an analogy we all believe in, and I spoke about this yesterday, and I, I want to cover it again for the benefit of the entire audience. We talk about the funnel uh, many times, and some of the terminology we use is terminology that grew out of Beck Labs many years ago. Concepts like friction were used you know, extensively in our early research, and now we all use these words. The funnel is a major analogy, but listen to me. It is better served when we understand it as the principal analogy. It describes exactly what's going on, and it's the greatest way to understand the sequence of thought. By the way, the steps in the funnel are not pieces of collateral beginning in the channel. The only way to understand the funnel, first of all, is to realize gravity is not your friend. The funnel should be inverted. People are not falling into your funnel. People are falling out of your funnel. When a hundred go in, we sometimes feel good if we can get two all the way through it. That's not right when you look at it as a upside, you know, in the right side, normal sense of a funnel. This is the marketer's problem. Why you're sitting here, millions of dollars are leaking out of the existing funnels. People are falling out all over our business and we've got to find some sort of force to attract them back at the funnel. I have spent 15 years running pattern tests across 10,000 different landing page paths trying to understand why people, how people make their way up that funnel. And it's not so much the funnel I'm interested in. It's that decision path that defines who you and I are. It's the decision path that defines who becomes a customer and who does not become a customer. And it's the essential question behind all successful enterprise and any situation where people have choice and you're extending an offer. The fundamental question we need to understand today is not just, say, a deliverability question, but why more people are not saying yes in our existing processes. We need more yeses. Marketers collect yeses, and the more you get, the higher your achievement. And I'll tell you something else. People aren't just falling down the middle of your funnel. People don't work like water pours in a funnel. People are climbing up the sides of your funnel, and every side is an individual path. Think about your website. Its paths are defined by its products and its prospects. Probably you've organized the site to appeal to different customer categories or by the products you offer. Those pathways lead people up the side of the funnel towards something we call the macro yes. The macro yes sits at the top of the funnel and it is only achieved if we go through a series of micro yeses. Many of you have heard me talk about this before. In fact, I taught some of it yesterday. But indeed, this is a journey in the mind. And in this journey, people are basically going to have to come to a series of yeses before they ever get to the fine macro yes at the end. And the macro yes represents the ultimate sell or what it is that you're trying to motivate them to do. Let me explain to you in more depth. In fact, look at the collateral. On a single page search ad or an email, there might be six or seven yeses. Beware, beware of trying to group those into one cluster and fix a problem without dissecting every single yes and tuning it. In a minute, I'm going to tell you the number one reason why people say yes or why they say no. But before I get there, let me just take you through the landing page. Because once they come from your email or your paid search ad and they hit your landing page, they've got a whole series of yeses you must guide them through. Unless you can get people through those yeses, you'll never get to the macro yes. Because it only takes one no to stop everything. Now, I see girls... Ladies, I see you nodding your head, and I often use the relationship not as a metaphor, but to explain marketing, because marketing is about a relationship. And, and I, I debate whether yesterday, because a lot of you were in the class yesterday, to sort of walk through that thought piece where each person can see how that decision is being made. But let's just talk about when someone commits their lives to each other in some sort of in a marriage or partnership together. I mean, you don't get to that macro yes without series of yeses before that. And again, the wrong no stops the entire process. And when you come to this web page, you are ready to move away from it. And unless we get you through those micro yeses, you will miss out. And I, I'm stressing this because 
Because so many of our problems come from not recognizing and mapping where each of those yeses are. We're trying to fix the collateral instead of understand the specific stumbling block in the mind of the person as they interact with our message. Even in the sales call, or if there is one, sometimes you close online, sometimes you don't, but there's this whole series of macro yeses. And one of the greatest dangers we can have is conflated objectives, not getting that sequence right. Now, I did this before. Guys, those of you that were yesterday's value proposition course, will you uh, grant me uh, some, a dispensation of grace so I can show that example again to the audience? Is that okay? You've seen it, but I, I'm feeling my audience and I want to get clear about this and it's the best way I know how. So to do that, I need somebody to come up and help me to do so. And I'm looking across this audience for that right person. And, and you're very good at just looking completely away from me when I look in your direction. I'm going to pick that young lady right there. And I almost picked you. You lucked out. Right there. Because you asked me a question yesterday beside you. Right there. She asked me a question yesterday. Yeah, come on up. No, no, no. The, the other lady right there. Yes, yes. Come up. There you go. You barely escaped. It was close. All right. So let me explain this very quickly. And then we're going to move on. But I'm going to use this young lady to help me. And we used this example yesterday when I was teaching. I want you to see those micro yeses. In fact, I'll go back for just a moment and stand you right here. You see, we have a line on the stage. We'll call this the beginning. I want you to see the micro yeses unfolding in her mind. And this is how it all works. Suppose that uh, she's looking for car insurance. Somebody give me a search term for car insurance. Rates. Give me a two-word term, a modifier. Say, say it again. Automobile rates. All right, so, so she types the word automobile rates in, and that's a full step on the thought journey. She's over at Google, and a group of ads come up. Guys that were in the class yesterday, which Google ad is she going to click on? Tell me. She's going to click on the one that has the, the most help in this decision process because she's not going to buy insurance in the paid search ad. And the goal of an email or the goal of a paid click ad is to get a click. A paid search ad's goal isn't to sell the product. And she may not be competing with you in the normal sense against a lot of your normal competitors. The decision to come to your site is based on whether she clicks on your ad or somebody else's ad. And each ad has its own value proposition. And she's got to find the ad that looks like it's most promising in exchange for her. Because in the end, she's doing something about every decision she's going to meet now. She's weighing the perceived value against the perceived cost. She's subtracting the two. And if the sum is negative, she's hesitating. I need that to be good. And so she sees a bunch of ads. Some talk about a company, how long it's been in business, all of that. But she sees one that offers a free comparison chart. So what does she do? She clicks on that ad and you know what to do, right? She takes one foot and sets there. Now listen to me because all over the internet this is happening while we're sitting here. People are clicking and they've got one foot and they're looking. And if they don't see those three questions, where am I at, what can I do here, and why should I do it? And if what they experience there doesn't connect to what they felt or expected from the channel, that foot doesn't stay. They look around and don't see what they're looking for and they hit the little green arrow and they do this. Back. They look in the search engine and they click on another ad. Google counts on that process. That might happen two or three times before she finally takes the back foot and gets it right here. Every person in here that's responsible for getting people from an email to a landing page needs to understand that you can't even worry about the call to action and all the things that seem to occupy us unless you've got the top four inches of your page right. And most of us have screwed up the top four inches of our page. We've got flash presentations. We have a lack of connect with what they saw on the channel. We've got dancing babies and penguins with tutus and, and swirling lights and all of these things instead of a clear, simple way to engage in the mental conversation because you've got to get in that thought sequence and synchronize with it. So here she is. And let's change the settings like we did yesterday. And we'll bring her over here to the bar at uh, Chateau tonight. So there she is at Chateau. You good? Mm-hmm. All right. She's doing good. Tell us your name. It's Sarah, everyone, all right? And Sarah's at the bar, and I'm some guy at the bar, you know, one of these desperate-looking guys like I see in the second row right there. And, and, and I've got to get a... I've got to... I try to... I, you know, I look at this girl. I'm interested in this girl. Sorry, guys. I'm just saying. I'm just calling it like I see it, all right? And I've got to... You want to pay attention to this, all right? This may be a, sort of part of what the problem is. I see a girl up there, and I'm interested in her. Think of it just like now. You're sitting in here, or you're sitting in a marketing meeting, you see a customer profile, and you want to attract that customer. Now, here's the ways that aren't going to work. I could do a banner ad. I could walk by. This is a banner ad. 
I don't say anything. I just stand there and flex the muscles a little bit, turn around, show your back, back up right here, waiting for her to do something. Because if she doesn't do something, nothing's going to happen. And guess what? She's not going to do anything. We, we run that interrupt by their life and try to interrupt it. That doesn't work. And I can't do what a lot of marketers do because we're so desperate to get that call to action in front of them. I can't run up to her, grab her by the shoulder, and kiss her full on the lips, can I? What's going to happen if I do? <laughs> I'm going to get smacked, and I'm going to get thrown out of the bar. What am I doing there? I've got the call to action above the fold. All I've done is push the call to action too soon in the thought sequence because there's a lot of things that got to happen before I would be able to feel the liberty to take a kiss or to give one. Does that make sense to everyone? So I need some way to engage her. How do I engage her? Tell, tell me what I need to get her somehow in, in relationship. I got to have a conversation, right? How do I get her in conversation? What? Buy her a drink. <laughs> All right, if she lets me, but even to buy her a drink, I've got to do something. I've got to say something to her. Guys, what do we call this? What is it called? Say it again. A pickup line. Now, if I come up here with a lame pickup line, it's not going to work, just like the lame headlines we see. I've got to use that pickup line, and the whole goal is like, turn, turn away from me like you're there. When I say the right thing, her body language will change, and she'll open a little bit. And I'll have a chance to converse just for a few seconds, right? So I say something like, um, so are you here for the Marketing Sherpa Summit? <laughs> Guys, there it is. You, you see that? Now, is that better than, than walking up to her and saying, you look familiar. Haven't we met somewhere before? Uh, I ask a normal question. She turns and she's open. But that doesn't mean I've got anything but a chance. Right, Guys. So now I've got to engage in an intelligent conversation with her. And maybe the most I can ask for, if this were to go perfect, is whether or not she'd like to maybe do a Starbucks at some point, or if she wants to, we want to trade numbers. Does that make sense? And then, over time, the relationship develops. Okay? Now listen, this is very important because the number one, the only way to have a relationship with this girl is to do something that every guy hates. It's, you've got to introduce you got to have a pickup line. You've got to have a way to say yes. Somebody may connect you, but even if somebody introduces me, I've got to say the right thing. Now, stop and think about that. Come back with me. Same problem at the point that front foot goes on the page. You've got a slight chance. And if you don't have the right pickup line, you'll never get in the conversation. A headline is a pickup line, and the goal of the headline is to get them into the first paragraph of text. So, boom, when she comes to this page, if she sees the comparison chart, a sensible headline, some bullet points supporting the claim, we've now begun to develop velocity through the cell process. And my job is to capture that velocity and not let it go. If she reads that full paragraph with me and starts moving forward in the copy, I don't want interruptions from the side. People yelling over here and yelling over here and 16 voices talking. I want to take her by the hand and I want to walk with her all the way through this. And each point of the micro yeses. And when I think she might be just a little afraid, I want to deal with her anxiety. If she's concerned about being spammed by salespeople, I want to say something about it. If she's concerned about sharing her email address, I want to say something about it. But I'm going to hold her hand until she clicks on the call to action. And once she's done that... I'm going to remind her of what she's just done and then begin to nurture relationship all the way through. Thank you. Can we give her a hand, Sarah, a hand, please? Now, next year when you come, I will not have this presentation. This is the last time I'm teaching it at all in this format. Uh, I've spent 12 months sort of building the messaging that we're talking about. I'm going to keep going with it to sort of tie it all in. You may have seen what I've just illustrated in other events and uh, in other parts of presentations, but it's so essential because we think of it still as a metaphor when it's not a metaphor, it's the reality. You have to build a relationship with someone. And it begins by getting them in a conversation. And too many of our emails fail to establish any conversation or dialogue. Stay with me. Because conflated objectives will get us. Here's an email. Largest physicians only social network. You've not really seen this one, guys, from yesterday, except a little piece of it. Here's the actual email. And it's a good email. 
It says, engage Sermo for your physician's social media strategy. Need to engage practicing physicians? Learn how to use Sermo's physician-only social media tools to conduct research and create product awareness. And then it has a get started button. Now, that looks like a decent email. But it's fatally flawed. It's fatally flawed, number one, because it doesn't emphasize the value in a way that's instantly credible. We'll talk about how to do that in a moment. But it's especially flawed because it's conflated. It's asking me to get started. Remember when Sarah was up on the screen? Suppose I didn't kiss her. Suppose I walked up to her and showed her a picture of my house and said, Hey, I've got a four-bedroom house on the beach. How many kids were you thinking of having? That's too soon, right? Too soon in the relationship. But that get started button, it's too soon also. I'm not ready to get started. I don't know enough. I'm not clicking to get started. I want to learn more. I want to see how it works. But that's not where I'm at in the thought sequence. Does that make sense to everybody? So the email has made the mistake of trying to sell the product and ask me for a commitment, but it doesn't have enough of what I need to make the right decision with. And so most people say no. What you've got to do is synchronize that email with right where they are in their own thought process. And that's why I was holding Sarah's hand as we walked across the stage. And indeed, look at this new email. First of all, a better headline. Sermo gives you immediate access to over 120,000 doctors. Now, people, there's no other place in the world where you can access 120,000 doctors. So the only factor has now been ramped up. Look at the next paragraph. Sermo is the largest social network of verified U.S. physicians representing 68 specialties. Physicians spend 35,000 hours per month on Sermo discussing drugs, medical products and procedures, as well as exchanging clinical insights in difficult cases. Do you see if you're a pharmaceutical company and you want to get in on that conversation, why that email has justified, it's a great pickup line, and then it converts attention, by the way, every headline should do this, into interest. That first paragraph takes the attention from the headline, converts it into interest, and then we hit them with two or three of the most essential reasons for uh, what we said already, the evidences and the benefits, and then drive them to a button that doesn't say get started. It actually synchronizes with exactly what they're thinking. They're now curious. They're interested in whether or not this might be something worth working. And they come to the conclusion that they can't fail to at least investigate it. Now, if you're a pharmaceutical marketing expert and you have a very limited set of places to go to reach these physicians and there are new laws being passed every month that makes that more and more difficult for you and you find out about a place that has that many doctors that engage 35,000 hours per month, would you agree with me that even if you don't want to read the email, you realize you better take a look at this because it might be something that you need to do your job right? See, people don't read email typically because they're excited about its opportunities. They read email in order to justify deleting it. Isn't that how you read your email? How many do you delete before you find one that you actually spend time with? In fact, many of you cluster and group them, don't you? You delete, 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 and then you have ones that are left, and you go back up, and you work through the most important of those. Your competition inside of the email uh, browser is not your competitor. It's the other email that might get attention instead of you. Your email has to have its own value proposition that justifies someone giving it attention instead of attention to someone else. You see, every single yes results in a no. The key is this, and it's sort of confusing, but it's part of this whole philosophy piece that will help you. One yes may equal one yes, but it could equal 10,000 no's. Think about that. One yes is just yes to that opportunity, but it's no to the other 10,000 or the other 10. Ladies, if you choose one man and say, this is the person I'm marrying, then that's saying no, right, to a lot of other men instantly. So your yes means a massive no. And that's why it's much easier to get no's than it is to get yeses. Yeses narrow the option infinitely down to a single uh, source or choice. Now, why am I stressing that? Because... This is what's happening in your inbox. People are zipping through it to eliminate all the email. And when they see that one, they can't eliminate that one. And the reason I say that is not because it sort of feels good, but because there's the before, there's the after, and there's the test result. 104% increase in conversion. What's the difference? Well, that email was synchronized with the thought sequence. 
I'm almost done. Are you doing okay so far? It's good to see you, Bob, by the way. I just realized when I got right here where you were there. It's great to have you. Um, So, essentially, if you'll go backwards, the original email had the call to action from the landing page mixed into the email. Get started is the sort of thing you would say on the landing page if they were fully persuaded. But it isn't something that you would say in the email so you can see that it did not flow. It skipped two steps and it plugged in something from the landing page. If you think of each blue box as a step within the sequence of thought, it had it confused. And all we did was sort of write that problem with the new email, and so we immediately saw, and this is the control, we immediately saw the big game. Brings me to my third and final point. The value proposition is the force which compels the prospect up the funnel. I am now saying the most important thing I have to say in the entire morning, probably in the entire event. It is the value proposition which creates velocity in the cell process. It is the value proposition which delivers the macro yes. It is the value proposition which justifies your business's existence. Indeed, if you don't have a value proposition, you are surviving on pockets of ignorance. People are giving you business because they haven't found there's a better solution somewhere else. And the value proposition has four components. And I don't teach this in a session like this. We learned it all yesterday. We spent six, seven hours together. A primary value proposition, like the company's, has three more derivatives. We call them the four P's. Primary, product, presentation, and process. Each of these have their own sort of key lever that you have to pull. So let's go back to the funnel. And you see the micro yeses. And you see the macro yes. Uh, We've conducted research for 20 years on this subject. 15 is what we say, I guess, officially. We uh, have reviewed every academic piece. We've gone through 2 million records. We've read 1,100 academic articles. Every single popular book created a historical timeline. And the largest deposit, really, of value proposition research in the world exists inside of Mech Labs. And I can tell you right now, no one in history had ever even tried to test a concept. And when I get inside a company and I say, tell me your value proposition, and I have ten leaders from the company write it down, they don't even write the same thing down on a piece of paper. We all use the word. It's one of those words we use. It's a convenient word to mean something we mean, but it's not a precise word because the word didn't even exist in the human vocabulary until the late 90s. And in an, really sort of in the early 90s, Michael Lanning put it in a book. Michael uh, lives in Atlanta today. And uh, he's dialoguing. In fact, I won't get into that. We're doing a summit for value proposition just for the the original thinkers. There's very few. Michael came up with a powerful concept. Michael Porter never put it in his book. He added it later in his revisions. We all talk about the word, but we don't understand it. What's the best definition for a value proposition? It takes me seven hours to teach that. But I can cut through the chase and show you a question you should be asking about everything you're doing. And it's on the screen behind me. And you've been reading it already. If I am, and every single word is important in that question, your ideal prospect, why should I buy from you? Or why should I open this email? Or whatever the action is, rather than, and that's whatever the competing action is, from one of your competitors. Until you have an ultimate reason that answers that question, and that reason has four components, it has appeal and exclusivity in a formulated dyad that we teach this dyad in our course, and clarity and credibility, it will not have the power, sufficient force, to get the most yeses in your pipeline. So what do we do? Well, here's that question broken down. If I is a third person translated into a first person question. We begin with, you know, what value does our customer perceive in our product offering? But you'll never get the answer until you become the customer in your own thinking. And that question is followed up by your ideal prospect, which requires you to determine who you serve better and who you can potentially serve better than anyone else can serve in the world with your particular offer. It requires you to face trade-offs. As a leader, it requires you to say no to many things. And then, why should I? This is an ultimate reason. It's the reason why, and it's supported by evidentials. And when you take that core reason and you have some bullet points in the form of evidences, You've crafted an argument, not a sort of argument like you might have at home with your children, not a negative argument, a positive argument. In the academic sense, a reason, a cogent argument. 
justifying my people should be doing business with your company as opposed to the competitors. And if you don't have that argument, if you don't have that reason, you may be working in the wrong company. A value proposition has to have an only factor. If it doesn't have an only factor, then there's nothing you're excelling in. And if you're not excelling in at least one dimension of value, how can you be the best solution? And if you're not the best solution, God forbid that you're going to try to make up for that by using lots of marketing. That's how the whole notion of hype has come into our vocabulary. We create confusion and we work with persuasion. Why? Because we don't and can't afford clarity. Clarity trumps persuasion any day. Clarity is the most important skill the marketer can bring to any piece of collateral. If you are talking to the right customer if or prospect, and if you have the best offer, then clarity is your friend. You know, there are four conditions. We'll talk about these four that you've got to create in the mind of someone. But this is essentially what we do all day long. We've got to tip the fulcrum so the value associated with anything. If I ask you to click on a button, the value associated with that click must be higher than the perceived cost. If I ask you for an email address, if I ask you for a lead form, if I ask you to open my email, if I ask you to respond to its call to action, if I ask you to move from the headline to the body text, I every single case. You've got to give me a reason to do so that outweighs the perceived cost. And that cost is a mental cost. It's not a price. But haven't you all felt it? Have you ever had some sort of email that you knew you had to read and God knows you didn't want to and you were dreading it but you had to read it and work through it or write a reply to it? We've all felt the mental dread associated with this cost. And all of our prospects feel the same. And we've got to know how to get through that dread. Forget the heuristic on the right. It's part of a very complex science formula. But all you need to know right now is value force outweighs cost force. And in particular, if we unpack the formula, and I'm not asking you to remember it, but I will tell you this. If you're interested in what I'm saying, and we did not do this as a booth traffic device, uh, this was a chapter for a book that I wrote in the UK. And uh, rather than publish it in the book, we went ahead and put it into one of these formats. It's the web as a living laboratory. I'm only sharing this with you. Listen to me. I'm only, in fact, it doesn't even have our... I don't even, uh, anyway, I, I, I'm sharing this with you because if what I say, we cover a lot very fast and you want to go back and reflect on it, there's more in this simple 20-page book that basically is a chapter written to explain a lot of what I'm saying right now. You can get that at the Mech Labs booth. And I was going to put one on every table, but we decided not to because we don't have enough. So if you want one, you should get it while you can. But it's also one of those things to take back and give to your boss. If you're excited about changes you want to make and you're trying to get them to think, you know, you might be able to get a few from our staff that you could take back and circulate. Uh, the objective of this piece, again, is to take what I'm saying and give you something in writing to read after I'm done talking because we're covering a lot in a very short period of time. Which brings me over here to this heuristic. And the heuristic reminded me of this. It, that heuristic's in here. Uh, just barely touched on. But forget it. Forget the word appeal and exclusivity. Forget clarity and credibility because they get in the way of something. My job is to foster a conclusion in the mind of someone. And to do that, I want to have carefully considered the value proposition so that I know that when I put this offer, it's the right product for the right person. And so it becomes a matter of communicating that clearly. And when I do that, I need to achieve four cognitive states in their mind. I, I got to do that so that I can shift the cost force at any place in the inverted funnel where I'm leaking performance. Now, look at that funnel sort of differently and think for just a moment. What happens if uh, you look at your metrics and you realize that it's on the second page of your cart you're losing people or on the third page of your process or you get people reading the top of the page but they're not clicking on the right call to action and you're concerned. That's what you're seeing here. That's what we have cost force outweighing value force. And we have to fix that. See how we shifted it? So that the value force outweighs the cost force. This is what gets those yeses. And when we get alignment across the micro yeses, we get a huge increase in the business. Now, I'm going to stand here for just a second and just try to help you get the significance of this. I looked at a major bank. They are in this building, I think. They're coming to this. And so, and it's not the Bank of America people that you met yesterday. 
They've seen many amazing lifts. Ask Melanie about the things they've done in their bank. It's, it's amazing what they've achieved. But I'm thinking of another bank. One series of experiments. Getting this piece lined up properly. Flipping that fulcrum and a few of those micro yeses where the value outweighed the cost. The round of experiments this past year produced $100 million. Just the experiments. I'm thinking of one of the top 15 largest companies in the world that had to do this exact thing in their online store. Their, their marketing budget is billions and billions of dollars. I'm talking about their marketing budget. We did this with them this year. We saw an entire products group revenue go up by 300%. Again, just experiments with the Mech Labs research team trying to understand. All of that's to validate this. I'm not selling a service when I say that. I could tell you about uh, a major television network. I think they're here also. You'd know them instantly. They saw a major lift 6x on their marketing and ROI 6x times in terms of revenue, getting this fulcrum tipped properly. Now, I could stand here for the rest of the day and tell you those stories. We have that many. And it is those exact stories that give me the motivation to be standing here. Because I don't want you to leave and go back and simply survive in your job where you're being hammered by deadlines and a boss that doesn't understand you. I'd love for many of you to discover the, the genuine sort of excitement that you may have at times that comes when you're really breaking out a deeper understanding of what's happening in people's minds and you're seeing it translated into measurable progress. The force of a value proposition can be measured the answer to that question can be measured across four essential conclusions. I told you they need to make these four conclusions. The first one is, I want it. That's appeal. It's a function of urgency, importance, and relevance. All three serve to ratchet up the intensity of appeal. The next conclusion they have to come to is, I can't get it anywhere else. Exclusivity. Now listen, some people may offer your product, but not precisely with the full experience that you offered, with the special way that you do so. Otherwise, why should they be getting it from you? You must figure out. You say, but I'm in banking and the industry's regulated. Or I'm in insurance and the industry's regulated. I've worked in all of those spaces. And there's still a way to create a unique customer experience that no one can match, that drives many yeses and transforms results in those groups. These two, however are contingent on two others, and this is where we feel, marketer, your problem is probably not the appeal side. And you can learn how to, to, to find exclusivity, but we fail in some areas that are absolutely inexcusable, and they are the next dyad. Two conclusions that these two rest upon. The first one is this. I understand it, whatever it is you're offering me. And the second one is, I believe it. It doesn't matter if there's an appealing product. Would you agree if they don't understand the offer? It doesn't matter if you have exclusivity if they don't understand it. It doesn't matter um, if you don't have that first key component, clarity. Everything else is going to suffer afterwards. And from clarity comes the next huge hurdle that you must overcome. You must make your claim in such a way as that they actually believe it. And most of us don't believe these claims anymore. We've seen so much nonsense. I mean, you've got four people calling themselves the leading expert. You've got all these people who tell you they're the fastest or the largest or the best. Does anybody know which cell phone company has the best coverage? Does anybody really know that? They all claim it, don't they? This is the world we're trapped within right now. And this is why this becomes so important. And you've got to help that customer say in their own mind, I understand what you're saying. They won't say it out loud. They won't even say it in their conscious mind, but they'll click. They've got to believe what you're saying. And there's a way to learn to do that. We taught it yesterday. Specificity. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a series of critical components that make your message more believable. I did an interview with the Washington Post on this with Obama and Romney on how they can actually achieve more credibility because no one was believing what they were saying anymore. So... I understand it, I believe it, allows them to finally make the conclusion, I want it. But that still isn't enough. They've got to say, I want it, and I want it from you. I have a confession to make. 
I was in Barnes and Nobles, which I have... I spend a lot of time in bookstores. And I was in Barnes and Nobles, and I saw an interesting book. You know what I did? I scanned it and bought it on Amazon. Afterwards, I felt really bad for Barnes and Nobles. But I thought to myself, this is what's really going on here. This is how dangerous this shift is. I sat down after I did, because now uh, a huge portion of my library is digital. And uh, I sat down, literally, in one of those chairs and tried to remember what it was like when I first started the research and thought, what if we could offer books online? And I realized that I just walked into a retail store, scanned it, and ordered the digital version. The world is changing so fast around you and I that we don't appreciate what's really going on or how fast that pace will be or how it redefines the future going forward. I can make you one promise. I don't know what's going to be the next wave in social media uh, or something beyond social media. I'm waiting for holographic technology to make it possible for us to put screens in front of us that aren't constrained by the size of our device. Do you understand how that will change the world? Completely change the world. Done properly, you won't need keyboards anymore either. This journey that we've been on uh, is something that 20-some years ago we began to plot. I worked through some, some things that seemed almost crazy to me, and now we're doing it. There's more coming. If you look ahead, you're going to see that there's a way now for technology to change the limitation of device size. I haven't read this anywhere yet, but you watch. Once device size is no longer a limitation, what we can do with technology is unbelievable. Already with the shrinking of microchips, the world has changed. My first computer I got from the Secret Service, it was a whopping 20 megabytes. 20 megs. They called it a laptop because it wasn't a notebook. It was a big, clunky computer with 20 megabytes, no color, and a screen that I fell in love with because I typed in DOS commands and started seeing the potential. Today, my iPhone has 64 gigabytes. 64 gigabytes in a device this big. My son was saying something the other day about his phone. I said, son, that is not a phone. He said, dad, that's a phone. I said, son, it's not a phone. He said, dad, it's a phone. I said, when you're old as me, you won't call it a phone. He says, what is it? I said, it's a computer. I mean, and I was trying to make a point. You can do anything with this, son. This is a full computer. We dreamed about this sort of computing power. When I was your age, we used typewriters. Seriously, that's how old I am. We used typewriters. I used to work with my dad, who's a scholar. I used to work with my dad, and he would type up his teaching notes. My dad's a teacher, and he's 80 years old, and he's my best friend. And I call him every day. And uh, my mom, too. They've been married 50 years. And, uh, and, and they're celebrating their 50th anniversary this month. And I call my dad up, and I was talking to him the other day about some things. I said, Dad, everything I'm doing now is stuff you taught me when I was a kid. How to build a problem, how to think about p how people respond to communication. But I remember he would make his teaching notes and then we would take the paper, which was tight, and we would hold it over some purple gel, push it down on top of the purple gel, really nasty stuff, put a metal lid on top of it, and then let it sit for a while. Then you would peel it off the top of the purple gel, set it to the side, and you'd take a piece of paper and lay it across the gel, put the lid on it, and peel it back off and it would have a copy. And we would do that with every page of the notes for a class of 30 or 40, and he'd take the written copies in. The world's changed. And it's changing just as fast going forward. In fact, faster. Here's the good news. Listen to me, guys. What we're talking about right now was true a thousand years ago. What we're talking right now was true 2,000 years ago. The value proposition, the way people choose, I don't know what's happening with that, but that's not me changing it. The way people choose... It's timeless. It doesn't matter whether it's social media. It doesn't matter what else they're going to pull down. People are still going to be making choices and they're still going to weigh the perceived value against the perceived cost. And they're still going to need to come to those four conclusions. And this is timeless. And the more you grasp it, the more it can transform how you think about all that you do. I'm almost done. Here's the danger of assumed value. And I bring you to one final example that we learned of yesterday and I'm done. Look at this problem. There's a paid search ad. It is underperforming. Since my time is limited, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, to go into depth, but how would you improve the ad? Just look at it for a moment in your mind and think to yourself, what would you do?
Well, the scientists at Mech Labs went with the original and did something different designed to achieve more of the I believe it portion of the four conclusions by being very specific about the number of clients and do you see how that leads to another conclusion when you read 6,459 world clients what does that actually help you conclude in your mind someone yes that they might be leaders world because they are that's the biggest in the group that a lot of other companies have tried this product so it might be safe or that you know what I can't afford not to look at this so many people are using it I'm looking for a solution for my business I better check it out what's the difference well the new ad produces 21% more click-through that goes to a landing page that has the same problem it's leaking and so we tilt the fulcrum do you see the cost force we tilt the fulcrum using this original landing page, changing it to this page. I won't go into what we did, but in doing so, we now tilt the fulcrum back. So the value force outweighs the cost force. And you see what that does to the inverted funnel? Now we got more people moving through this series of yeses. Remember, there's multiple yeses on that page. And we see a 54% increase, but it's compounding. That's 21% compounding against 54%. And then you come to the next piece of this funnel and it is a a form and we tip so that the cost force doesn't weigh so much by moving the original to this same number of fields by the way the value force then outweighs the cost force what happens to form completions a 97% increase in people who complete the form now let's do the conversion math we have 21% galloping against 54% galloping against what you see behind me another 97% what does that actually equal to a 272% increase in overall conversion. Which also leads to, if you look at the fine print, 268% more in revenue and a 66% reduction in cost per acquisition so that the optimized path produces four times the monthly profit, a 302% increase in profit. What happened there is very simple. There were a series of micro yeses that were underperforming in the series of micro yeses necessary to achieving a macro yes. And in their underperformance, we use a metrics program to find where the leak was. And then we looked at the value proposition at each one of those key pieces and addressed them one at a time so that you saw the lift in the ad, the lift on the landing page, the lift on the form. And what resulted was a 302% increase in monthly profit. Why is that so important? Because it emphasizes how critical it is to make certain that, number one, you are pressing that value proposition and that technology and that lens through every single step of the process. It's important, number two, because it helps you and I to recognize that this theory that we're talking about has really tangible implications for our everyday life. It can be transformative in process after process. Now, I, uh, that's the booklet you can get in the back. I, and it's free, by the way. I have the frustration of wanting to actually go through your own landing pages. How many would you like to do some landing page optimization before this event is over? Looking at pages, working through them like we've done in the past. We're going to do that with you. I'd like to do it uh, very soon, but I've got to make way for our next speaker and then I'm going to shift into that uh, with you in just a few moments or later today or tomorrow definitely during the clinic and also at the closing session but I, I want to first of all make certain that you sort of grasp these key pieces that you're invited to go over and to get the pamphlets and let me just sort of end by suggesting this you and I live at a time right now where we have the most unprecedented opportunity in the history of the world to get inside the thought sequence and understand why people say yes. And everything I've talked about in this inverted funnel applies not just to, uh, say, your business practices, but it applies to all the important decisions you make in your life. And I invite you to think deeper about all of this. Peter Drucker said, adequacy is the enemy of excellence. Many of us are just trying to get to adequacy in our departments, or we've achieved adequacy, and it's just not as fun anymore. Because we, have, we don't have that excitement that comes 
when we're breaking into new territory, discovering new things, learning more. I invite you to say to yourself, I'm not going to spend eight hours of my day or ten hours of my day, five or six days a week, doing things that I just have to do in order to pay the bills. And I'm not just going to try to get interested so that my career can advance, but I actually want to learn this stuff because it fascinates me and it, it feels like it makes me a better person to understand this and even question my own self and my own decisions along the way. I invite you to do so, but whatever you do, may I tell you that I'm very grateful that you've chosen to come to this event, that you've trusted us with your time, and may I promise that we're going to do everything possible to make it better. And I'll guarantee you something. You're going to find some things that are wrong. I have way more staff here than we need. Do you know why? Because the event's getting bigger every year. It's a record again for us. And the sponsorship is a record for us. But we are just getting started at trying to turn this thing into the most remarkable event we can possibly do. That's what makes it interesting. Help us get it better and better and better. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this recording of a Marketing Experiments live web clinic. You can sign up to receive invites to future live web clinics, as well as receive access to $10 million worth of Internet marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Thank you.